the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, indeed, and he's here to say hello. Good afternoon. Welcome. It is, of course, a Wednesday, five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. Craig, (coughs) pardon me, all choked up. Craig Roberts, welcome you into another edition of Lifeline. Got a pretty jam-packed agenda for you here on this Wednesday. Coming up a little bit later on, best-selling author Dr. Gary Thomas joins us. You know, a lot of us perhaps know that there's a calling on our life, and yet sadly struggle with the notion of trying to understand precisely what that calling is. We'll talk about that and share some insights in relationship to things like surrendering, service, and the other S-word that we're loath to even consider many times these days, sanctification. Dr. Gary Thomas later on in tonight's program. Changes potentially coming to the California Death with Dignity Law, using that with tongue firmly planted in cheek. Brian Johnston of the Western, uh, Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee will tell us what SB 380 is all about. That's coming up later on in tonight's program. As we lead off, respected as he was vilified, revered as much as he was reviled, he called himself a truth detector, the doctor of democracy, lover of all mankind, an all-around good guy and harmless as a fuzzball. Titles that his legions of followers across the country embraced as he boomed from their radios in a daily Monday through Friday ritual. He was a dominant force in talk radio, one of the most influential voices in Republican uh, politics, and arguably the architect of the modern right. He was Rush Limbaugh, who passed away today from stage four lung cancer at his home in Florida. Rush was 70 years old. Joining me now is um, a colleague, friend, a frequent occasional um, substitute host on this program, who at one time worked with Rush Limbaugh. We're joined now by Mr. Andy Froyland. Andy, good to have you with us. Hi, Craig. Hey, it's good to be with you too, man. So you uh, you described yourself when you when you shared with me the news that uh, you and Rush had been colleagues at one time that you were the uh, <laughs> you were the long haired hippie FM disc jockey across the hall. <laughs> From Law Rush doing the early days of AM talk radio in Sacramento. Tell us all about that. Uh, it was, you know, as you well know, um, Christian broadcasting can always be a backdoor into a major market for us struggling DJ types, especially back in the 80s and 90s. And Christian radio provided that, uh, that foothold in a major market, or a, at least a somewhat major market. And for me, that was Sacramento. Uh, I, I got a job working for our then, uh, it was not a sister station back then, it used to belong to Olympia Broadcasting, but uh, uh, 
Uh, it is now one of our sister stations in Sacramento, KFIA. And in order to help make ends meet, as most in radio broadcasting will attest, you usually have to pick up a second job. And so I did. Uh, a broadcaster by the name of Mike Burlack gave me a 10 to 2 job at KAER in Sacramento, which coincided with Rush Limbaugh's uh, fairly new talk show. I mean, it was by the time I showed up in 88, it was the talk of the town. Um, he was starting to gain notoriety. It was shortly after in 89 that he would actually go to New York and start the EIB network. Um, he was still, and you know, I can remember meeting him for lunch uh, probably, oh, I want to say 2007 uh, over in Pebble Beach when he did the Pro-Am. Uh, we got together for lunch. Uh, and nothing had changed since 1988 when he took me under his wing and 2007. He was still the same guy, humble, um, self-effacing. Um, he, uh, he was just Rush. But I can remember watching him. I was, you know, he was 10 to noon, I was 10 to 2, and he was right across the hall. And, you know, I was sporting a nice red afro, made Bernie on room 222 look like he had a butch. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he coined the phrase the long FM, long-haired FM hippie types. You long-haired FM hippie types, and and he would look at me and laugh from across the hall, you know. And and I'd sit and listen to him. I'd play the listen at work station music, and then I'd, I'd hit the music. I'd do my shtick, and then I'd I'd punch over to the AM and listen to what he was doing. And as you well know, Craig. That was totally new to radio. We had never really considered at that point in time taking two hours and talking politics. We had news talk, we had news stations, and we had music stations, but we didn't have talk stations per se. And I, I was fascinated by what he was doing, and so I asked him one day, well, what does it take to put a program like that together? And he said, well, follow me around. Come, come in early in the morning and follow me. A two-hour talk show for him began at 6 in the morning when all of the East Coast newspapers would post their top stories on what was then called the BBS. This was before WWW, if you'll remember. That was the BBS. And he would upload all those things uh, at 9,800 baud rate and start going through the stories of the day. Duke Majin was our governor. Reagan was our president. And for him, it was a chance of a lifetime to be able to capitalize on what conservatives saw and thought could happen with guys like that at the helm. And, and it, it fueled him. But as he taught me, he, he, he said, look, be overly prepared. Never go into that studio with a small stack of information. Always be overly prepared. Prepare for like you've got five programs to do. And then whatever's left over, move over to the next day. But always remember this. No matter how prepared you are, always be convinced of the truth, confident of what you know to be true and right, and rely on that. But never forget, no matter how much truth you know, no matter how convinced you are of what you believe, this is still entertainment, and you have to use that truth and that knowledge and that information and do it in an entertaining fashion, and you'll succeed. And obviously he did. 
uh, he was very polemic. You either hated or loved. You were never on the fence with Rush. And that was the entertainment factor that would take what he knew to be true and put it right on top of Mount Everest and let you decide which side you wanted to fall on. And certainly as national figures go, if you think back historically through radio, there were people like in the 1930s and largely 1940s, Arthur Godfrey. Later on, we think of such um, venerable names as Paul Harvey and his influence on broadcasting for many, many decades, uh, both of whom have left an indelible mark, to be sure. Uh, Paul uh, Harvey kind of having that uh, storytelling uh, uh, talent about him. And so now you know the rest of the story. Arthur Godfrey mm-hmm. with that very casual, just kind of chatting over the backyard fence style. And uh, and it was always interesting with Rush because as, as he could be um, combative at moments, um, he, he strove to always call it as he saw it. And as we mentioned at the top of the program, uh, undoubtedly uh, leaving a major imprint on uh, not just talk radio, to be sure, but on conservative politics as well. Well, you know, Craig, as I look back over the last 30 years or so, I, I look at the what he has left behind, the legacy he's left, love him or hate him, he has changed the landscape of broadcasting. I, I think he saved AM radio. I think he saved FM radio when it started simulcasting. I think he changed the landscape and paved the way for guys like you, guys like me, whether you're conservative or whether you're liberal on the three-letter station across the bay. He left his mark for the rest of us to follow and gave a nation pause to stop and actually consider and think for themselves. And, and you, you, you can't take that away from it. You just can't. Absolutely not. And he's uh, certainly going to be a a difficult person to replace, if not completely irreplaceable, much as an Arthur Godfrey or a Paul Harvey. That said, I'll mention for our listeners, if you're looking for a little bit of dose of uh, your daily conservative talk radio and uh, woke up this morning quite disappointed uh, in your nine to noon experience, we happen to have a sister station in town that can hopefully uh, help you um, itch, uh, scratch that itch. Uh, You can tune in to 860 AM The Answer for some quality conservative talk radio around the clock right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Again, that's 860 AM the answer. Well, Andy, I appreciate you taking a moment to share a little bit about your experiences and uh, remembrances of not only working across the hall from Rush Limbaugh, but uh, the lessons he taught you and uh, the influence he had on your own broadcast career. I'm only curious about one thing. Yeah. You you mentioned about some of the lessons he taught you, and you described him early on as being humble and self-effacing. He... um, he didn't get around to teaching you those lessons, did he? <laughs> if he did, no. you're not a very good student. <laughs> oh, dig it in, dig it in, brother. You, was, you uh, knew I if I did if I didn't go there, you'd think there was something wrong, brother. <laughs> I, I would have had to ask after the show. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, for KFAX listeners, uh, Andy Froyland is a very familiar voice. You hear him on a variety of broadcasts uh, throughout the day. And, of course, he sits in for me every now and then and uh, co-hosts with uh, our our dear friend, uh, Dr. Phil Howard, the fourth Friday of the month here on Lifeline. So, Andy, we appreciate you. Appreciate you also sharing your thoughts and memories of the late Rush Limbaugh, talk show host extraordinaire, 
passed away today at the age of 70. It's 16 minutes past the hour. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As Californians, we know that a lot is said about our state, and much of it, unfortunately, not very complimentary. And uh, we sadly sometimes wear some of the craziness that our state legislature does as almost a badge of honor when it should really be uh, a a scarlet letter, uh, as it were. Uh, That said, one of the reputations that we have is not that of working very hard to protect and defend innocent life. Witness, for example, the outrageous abortion rates in the state of California or um, our uh, uh, so-called entrance into things like death with dignity or uh, end-of-life options, things of this sort. Well, uh, that reputation of, of not defending life uh, sort of continues here. There is a new consideration in Sacramento in the form of Senate Bill 380, which would impact, and in some ways I think weaken, if I'm reading this correctly, weaken some of the protections that were in the original end-of-life option act. So let's get some details about what's transpiring Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX, joins us for an update. Brian, help us understand what, what's the motivation behind the introduction of SB 380. What is it seeking to accomplish? Yeah, it's uh, another, again, dealing with those who are willing to kill vulnerable people. You have to remember, if that's your goal, then being honest with words is not really what they're about. And what this does is this basically, SB 380, is going to require physicians to refer, if they're not comfortable with someone who says, Doc, you got to kill me, just kill me. They're not comfortable. Well, right now, they can say, well, I, I don't agree. It's not just that I don't agree. But many doctors will say, actually, there's other things that we can do. And I see the number one issue with you, because this is universally, by the way, suicidal thoughts are the number one indicator of a deep depression. So you might get a terminal diagnosis someday, but when you say, well, just kill me, just finish me off, that is an indicator you're not dealing with a deeper issue. And a good doctor will say, look, let's walk through it. And I have other recommendations. If a patient does that, now under SB 380, if the doctor doesn't say, okay, I'll do it, or, well, I won't do it, but I'm going to have to give you to someone who will. So this will force a doctor who will know, according to their training, this should not be done. I can in good conscience. Well, that's too bad. We're going to force you to make sure this patient dies. And as you already know, with abortion, there's going to be specialists. There's going to be people, and they're going to be known. That's all they do. You better believe, if you want an abortion, it's known these the abortionists. If you want to kill yourself, well, then there's going to be, they're not going to try to counsel you. There's not going to be someone there looking after the Hippocratic tradition of really caring for the patient. And now good doctors will be forced 
to basically aid and abet that up until this moment. And the very reason it passed, by the way, I was just looking this up in 2015, the California Medical Association became the very first state medical association to approve assisted suicide, but on one condition. There had been an amendment that would ensure that doctors could have a conscience right, that they could basically say, no, I don't want to be involved and I don't refer for this. Because of that, the CMA said, okay, well, we'll go along with it. And that's why it passed. I don't know where the CMA is at right now. And that's the nature of these types of things, is that once it becomes regular medical procedure, it just becomes part of society. So this is an important bill. We're hoping the CMA is going to demand, they had originally demanded, but the genie's left the bottle. The water's under the bridge. Assisted suicide now is everywhere. It's very similar to the abortion situation that, that there are people, that's what they do. They're killing docs. And this will require good doctors to have to send a patient to a killing doctor, even if it's against not just their, their own judgment, but their understanding of that patient's condition. You still have to say, okay, well, go die. I wash my hands of you. And this is a very, very serious situation because, well, it's what we warned you all along. Once doctors become killers, you're going to get more killing. Well, and sadly, for doctors that take the Hippocratic Oath that they swore and when they began their careers, for doctors that take that seriously, to suggest that now they need to essentially be told, well, if you're not willing to uh, take the gun the patient handed you, point it at them and pull the trigger because you believe it's morally wrong, repugnant, inappropriate, uh, destructive of life, on the list goes, instead of being able to say, no, I won't participate in this, it's the equivalent of saying to the doctor, well, we won't force you to participate, well, we will force you to hand the gun to somebody else to pull the trigger. Now, <laughs> you know, at, at the end of the day, they, they may be trying to sort of comport themselves to the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, meaning protecting and honoring life, is certainly being flushed down the tubes with this proposed SB 380. And most importantly, too, again, we can look at it as Christians that it goes against our conviction. But think of it this way. A professional doctor can know this person, if I just give them the right meds or if they talk to the right counselor, they're going to snap out of this depression. I, I want to make sure that happens. I want to be a good doctor. It isn't just that, well, it's going against my personal... It's my personal feeling about this, and it would make me immoral. No, this is when, I, let's say it's a secular doctor, who, who, you know, the, the one I really like, the bill that we put forward and then President Trump put it forward on the national level, is the right to try, which, by the way, many medical professions and many, many uh, hospital associations oppose. But the right to try is if there's a possibility that there's a treatment that could cure you, and people say, no, it's, it's too experimental, it's too, too dangerous. Well, no, you should have the right to try. And that comports with the purpose of medicine. I want to try to help this person. So it isn't just, we as Christians, obviously, deeply concerned about the violation of conscience. We're talking about the violation of the medical profession itself now. That, no, 
death is an answer. Death is a treatment. Just like, again, it does come back to it, just like many people believe, well, abortion is a treatment for pregnancy. Pregnancy is a health condition, and this is a treatment. No, it's not. No, it's killing. No, no, we're just going to pretend this is just a regular treatment, and therefore it's just one more option. But it's not. And they don't believe in the one more option. They're not fighting. The, the culture is not fighting for the right to try. They're only thinking it's the right to die. But it is basically the right to be killed. And that's a very different issue, and there has to be killers. And now doctors have become killers, and good doctors are being excoriated. They're being, being set aside out of the profession. They're not going along with the current cultural values, the zeitgeist. And that has changed the medical profession that we now see today. So we have to fight for them. We've got to fight for the good guys. And that's the purpose of the law. So this is a very dangerous, dangerous addition to the right to die law. Well, and, and sadly, in a state like California, Brian, and, and, and we know this uh, too well because of the impact of COVID, when there's a struggle to even find sufficient numbers of physicians and nurses that are willing to work on the front lines and, and deal with not just day-to-day health issues, but a crisis like this, and then you add into the mix essentially communicating to uh, women and men of character who value life, who wish to get into the medical profession because they want to make life better for people, ease pain, and uh, and heal, and then to be told, yes, but you must check your morals at the door. If you come into this profession believing that life above all things is precious and sacred and must be valued and protected, you're told, sorry, no room for you here. And that's an absolute shame. And believe me, states like California, I think, are going to find it more and more difficult to be able to attract quality physicians, at least they'd be willing to basically check their morals at the door. It's it's shameful. You can get more information about Senate Bill 380 and undoubtedly in the coming editions of Life Matters. Brian Johnson will be diving into this topic deeper as we will invite him to do so here on Lifeline as well. In the meanwhile, we invite you to check out the broadcast, Life Matters. It's heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. You can get more information, too, online at CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. Our thanks to Brian Johnston for that update about Senate Bill 380 on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You have today, perhaps in your travels, ran across an individual or more with a a black spot in the center of their forehead, signifying, uh, signifying today, Wednesday, as Ash Wednesday, more commonly understood on the Christian calendar as the first day of Lent. And I think a a very important day as we begin this 40-day period of of, uh, consideration, thought, introspection, um, and and certainly uh, deepening understanding of uh, moving into Good Friday and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for all of us. And then, of course, the glory that we celebrate three days later on Easter. 
an important day, I think, to be sure on the Christian calendar, though it doesn't get nearly as enough attention to it. And I think uh, uh, timely to begin a discussion today on some of these broader topics related to the Christian faith, what it means to live out a life of service, to surrender to Christ. And here's a phrase we don't hear often anymore, what it means to be sanctified. We have some discussion now on the broader topic as we discuss the glorious pursuit, becoming who God created us to be. Joining me is best-selling author Dr. Gary Thomas. He's the author of some 20 books that have sold, all told, more than 2 million copies, translated into more than a dozen languages. He has uh, served as an adjunct faculty member at Western Seminary and Houston Theological Seminary and serves currently on the teaching team at Second Baptist Church of Houston. And Dr. Thomas, thanks for taking some time to be with us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. And are you managing to stay uh, warm and with the lights down in, uh, in Houston? <laughs> a funny thing, we spoke last weekend at a church in Louisville, Kentucky. We're never able to make it back into Houston. And yesterday finally gave up after two and a half days at the airport and five canceled flights. We flew into Phoenix and are waiting it out, which is where I am tonight. Oh. And the weather's beautiful. Oh, my. Well, uh, we'll we'll be praying that you eventually make it home safely. I understand that a second storm has rolled through, and, of course, the impact on Texas and the power grid has been uh, horrific. We in in California can certainly relate to you. Uh, Our problems, though, typically come without power during the summer. But uh, nevertheless, we're we're delighted that you're able to join us um, in in spite of uh, the circumstances. And to talk about an important topic, as I mentioned, today being uh, the beginning of Lent. And uh, my goodness, this this broader issue of uh, our our Christian faith and and what it means to live out the Christian life. Uh, You know, some of the preachers of old, I think of people like um, Billy Sunday, for example, who um, focused his entire preaching career on sin, salvation, and sanctification. I think sometimes the, the modern church today, we kind of grasp some concepts of sin, and so we're, we're uh, once convicted of the whole, by the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, come to the acknowledgement of our uh, condition, our fallen nature, and therefore repent, and we uh, then experience the joys of salvation. But sadly for a lot of believers kind of stops there. It, it's almost as if we kind of get stuck in a in a uh, spiritual rut. We're happy, we're saved, we've got the fire insurance policy. All that sanctification part, though, as we go deeper in our walk and with Christ or learn what it needs to, to live out a, a life that emulates Jesus, sometimes we fall short on that. Why do you think that is? I think theologically, quite frankly, there's some suspicions of wanting to grow spiritually, as if it's pursuing work righteousness. But trying to grow in holiness, the word you sanctified, set apart, isn't about getting into heaven. It doesn't impact our eternal destiny at all, but it does shape our witness on this world. It shapes our relationship. It's really about becoming who God created us to be, which is people who resemble Jesus Christ. And I, I think you put your finger on it, that the ancients stressed a life of holiness, modern stress being saved. And that's where the emphasis is. Uh, They're not at war with each other. It should be both and. I just do think we live in an age of the Church where we are so focused on salvation to the exclusion of holiness, 
that we're more concerned about offending people than speaking God's truth. And do you think, Dr. Thomas, maybe part of it, too, is a sense of confusion that we don't really understand what the the, the sanctified life is or looks like? And so when we talk about things such as patience and virtue and chastity, generosity, self-sacrifice, that we get confused and think, oh, you're talking about works. Well, you know, <laughs> our, our, our relationship with Christ is based on grace, not works. And so we don't yeah. have to spend any time working or dealing with those things. Yeah. Well, Peter would disagree. Second Peter 1, 5 through 9 says this, make every effort to add to your faith. And then he lists many virtues, and he says, for if you possess possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in in Peter's view, salvation is the beginning of pursuing righteousness and holiness. It's not laying back uh, and, and forgetting about that. And he says, if we don't have them in increasing measure, which means none of us have arrived, this is a journey all of us are called to. We're going to be ineffective and unproductive in our faith. And we just have to look at the news the last couple of years about how seemingly effective and solid ministries have been completely undercut by a lack of the pursuit of holiness on the leader's part. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, a, a, a sad and, and, uh, and very fresh wound for the church and and an ongoing one i mean this is this is certainly uh, nothing new in man's uh, fallen state or sin condition and and yet maybe helps us better understand uh why why paul talked about striving in the faith and dying daily to the flesh and that while yes the the moment of salvation where we have repented and surrender our lives to christ and our name is written in the lamb's book of life may be that may be a moment, but then that process of what true discipleship is, meaning becoming more and more of a reflection of Jesus, um, that, that's something that tends to, to elude us. And it's always struck me, Dr. Thomas, that a lot of believers, they put more time, effort, and energy into thoughts about uh, how they're going to raise their kids, what vacation they're going to plan, or even how they're going to come up with a strategy for retirement. Um, but they leave little time to meditating on God's Word and thinking about what it truly means to be surrendered to His Lordship or what that process of of sanctification, purification, and holiness looks like, let alone why it is such a critical component of our Christianity, a component that we've kind of largely left by the wayside. Absolutely. And the way John Wesley, in particular, I mean, many writers through the centuries have, have talked about the freedom of pursuing holiness. We often think of it as legalism or shackles. They talked about the freedom, and I love what John Wesley would say. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially, anger doesn't get to determine how I respond to somebody's failings. Lust doesn't get to determine how I look at women. Uh, Greed doesn't get to determine how I look at money. Uh, The failures of others doesn't get to determine whether I respond with patience or impatience. He saw it as being who he believed God created him to be, a person of of patience, of humility, of service. And and if we look at it, sin makes us miserable. Anger ruins our relationships. Lust gets in the way of helping 
enjoyment and pleasures. Greed turns us from givers to consumers. Uh, impatience makes us miserable to be around. We don't have any grace. We don't have any gentleness or understanding. A lack of gentleness, i.e. harshness, turns, hurts our loved ones. And so becoming more like Christ is simply wanting to become someone who's more engaged in relationships, free from the sins that, that torment us, that give us regret, that give us shame. And that's really what the Glorious Pursuit is all about, finding out what were those qualities of Jesus that we should emulate, learning what they are, understanding the Scriptures, and then just practicing them. Just like a, a bodybuilder decides they're going to work on their biceps or triceps or legs by the weights they lift, the Christian classical writers understood that we grow spiritually. The spiritual weights are the virtues. We practice humility. We practice gentleness. We practice patience. And in the process, we become more humble, more patient, and more gentle. And I think what's remarkable about your observation, and I want to dive into this, Dr. Thomas, a bit deeper after the break, but what's remarkable about that is that, you know, oftentimes that list of the attributes that you just went through, people hear that and think, well, that's just, that's just proof that God is a cosmic killjoy. He's happy to save us, but he doesn't want us having to have any fun once we've been saved. And that isn't the point at all, that in fact, as we talk about those attributes and striving for that, that there is a, a real means by which as we go deeper in that sanctification, it becomes a yardstick, a measurement, if you will, by which we, we, we advance in the glory of our relationship, in the deep and depth of, of, of a sense of deeper and more profound satisfaction, that closeness with Christ that eludes so many that say, I feel as if God is a million miles away and we think it's somehow his fault instead of acknowledging maybe we're coming up short. We're visiting today with Dr. Gary Thomas, best-selling author. His latest book is called The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. It's newly released by NAV Press, available at uh, Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. If you're not going out of the house, you can order it online. You can also get it through Dr. Thomas's website. It's easy, GaryThomas.com. That's GaryThomas.com. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, we'll dive deeper into what exactly is this pursuit of virtue and how does it lead us to look more like Christ and feel closer to Him. That is our conversation with best-selling author Dr. Gary Thomas continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Best-selling author Dr. Gary Thomas is with us this evening. His latest book is called simply The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. And um, let's let's kind of unpack some of this again, as I suggested before the break, Dr. Thomas. Uh, some people think that God's just some kind of a cosmic killjoy once we get saved, and it's this list of all these rules. But there is really something deeper, more significant, more profound going on here when God calls us to things like the pursuit of humility or patience or even practicing thankfulness. Walk us through, if you would, uh, some some of these quote unquote virtues. There's a term we don't see or hear very often anymore. And and how, why and how Christians should strive to pursue them. Yeah. 
Well, the whole point behind the glorious pursuit is that the focus of our lives should be to pursue the virtues and, and sort of accumulate them. We'll never corner the market. But I had an experience with my wife that really put it into focus. We were vacationing at uh, Hot Springs in Colorado, and a group of women came into the pool where we were, and they just started talking about all the beauty treatments and how much money they spent trying to look younger than they are. My wife said, hey, Gary, let's go to another pool. So we did, and she asked me, does it bother you that I'm not like that, that I don't think about that? I happened to be reading William Law at the time, an 18th century Anglican, and, and I paraphrase him where he basically said that women and men should earnestly pursue humility, patience, generosity, compassion, courage, and kindness with the same intensity that those in the world pursue wealth, fame, worldly achievements, and physical beauty. Most people in this world, Craig, they're achieving. They want to become wealthy, well-known, healthy, comfortable, and they want to be beautiful. Those are worldly pursuits. I'm, I'm not saying Christians can't have those, but William Law said our focus should be, I think even more importantly, Scripture says our focus should be, am I growing in patience? Am I growing in humility? Humility is the chief virtue. The classics would call it the queen of the virtues. Three times in Scripture. Very rarely does God repeat himself like this. Once in the Old Testament, twice in the New. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so this pursuit of humility, that we understand our place before God, that we fear God more than we fear others. It's not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking less about ourselves. So I'm putting myself at others' disposal. I want to be a servant. I'm not in a room to impress people, but to listen to people, to be God's agent, to reach out to people. It's a joyful life, Craig. It's not legalism, because if I go to a party wanting to be noticed and to impress others, I'm going to be anxious and probably will not feel that I was noticed enough or appreciated enough. But if I go into a party wanting to encourage somebody, listen to somebody, bless somebody, there's always somebody to be listened to, to encourage and to bless. It's simply a better life. Jesus said it's better to give than to receive, and I think a lot of us as Christians sadly just don't believe that. Well, moreover, and it reminds me of the story, and, and, and we've all perhaps run into this person, maybe we are this person, who, for example, during the college years wants to fit in, wants to be with the cool kids, and so will maybe join a club or a fraternity and in order to get that greater sense of belonging and be closer, they will engage in the, in the similar activities. They'll get involved in the same sports. They'll dress the like. They, 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 in many respects, will try to emulate the people, the cool kids, so to speak, within that group in order to be more like them so that they can have that greater sense of belonging and acceptance. And, and ironically, in this sense, and I, and I apologize for maybe just butchering this example, but it occurs to me, Dr. Thomas, that in a sense, that's what God is telling us, that, that, that in order to have that greater sense of belonging and community within the family of God, and ultimately to draw closer to Him, He asks one thing of us. You want to know Him more? and be closer to him, be more like him. Am I right? Absolutely. And there's great joy in that. I mean, if anybody dreads becoming more like Christ, I wonder, well, do they have a heart that's been redeemed by Christ? So we believe Jesus is the most glorious, the most perfect, the most complete 
human who has ever lived. His courage matched with his gentleness. His patience matched with his wisdom and discernment. His detachment, as far as not being tied to the things of this world, matched with his uh, exuberant living of thankfulness. And, and all of these things, it's just like, it's just like, of the things we could become, we could become wealthy, or we could become more like Christ. We could become famous to others who don't know us, or we become more like the most significant human who ever lived. We could become wealthier and will die with no more than the poorest person in the world, or we can die as a person who modeled Jesus Christ to their family and friends. The Bible, William Law, so many classic writers say the glorious pursuit is a more significant pursuit that every Christian should be on. And for me, the virtues just gave me the how-to. I, I knew I was supposed to grow, but what does that mean? It, 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 it doesn't sound definite enough. But when I could see the virtues of Christ and understand how they're applied in Scripture, see how they exhibited themselves in Jesus' life, then I could finally say, oh, this is my spiritual bodybuilding. I can practice humility today. I can focus on practicing gentleness. We haven't gotten into detachment. It's one of my favorite virtues about pulling up sin by the root by being detached from the desires that lead us to sin. I, it really is a life of freedom. And at the end of the day, maybe puts into perspective the fact that we, we, we oftentimes, and erroneously so, live out our lives as if it's all about our life here on earth, making the most of the 60, 70, 80, 90 years, whatever we're blessed with, years here on earth. And then feeling as if, or thinking as if this is sort of the be all to end all, that that's the end game. Well, this is not. This is so fleeting, so temporary. And, and our time is not about trying to make the most of the material years physically on earth, though certainly there are dynamics of that related to, to family that, that are important. But it's really about a time of preparation because this is not our permanent home. And and so often we, we really like act, uh, Dr. Thomas, as if this is it, that's all there is, so we're going to focus all on this and let, let heaven worry about heaven. We're going to worry about what we do here on earth. But that really isn't what God wants for us, is it? No. You know, and one thing I've noticed just as a pastor, how humiliating aging can be. People who are in the full control of their powers and they were bosses or they were models in the community— and they can be humiliated by the body breaking down, but I almost liken it to the birthing process. Just as physically we have to come into the world and we go through a lot of things, they're being birthed into eternity. And, and if humility really is the queen of virtues, getting a crash course in humility as you enter eternity makes a lot of sense to me, uh, that God gives us a chance to really be transformed in the kind of people who will be celebrated, and what matters most in eternity in God's kingdom. Because the things of this world, physical beauty won't impress anyone. Our worldly accomplishments, trying to look younger than we are, the, the goal really should be focusing on the virtues and letting that draw people in. The book, again, I want to remind listeners, is called The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be, newly published by 
NAF Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, or you can order it directly through Dr. Thomas's website at GaryThomas.com. That's GaryThomas.com. Dr. Thomas, we appreciate so much the time and the insights, and uh, uh, wish you Godspeed in making it back home to, uh, to Texas uh, safely and uh, with the power and lights on. Dr. Gary Thomas, author of The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. Six o'clock from KFAX.